Hello, and welcome to the Promenade Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Reyes. So, I guess I first have to address what would be the targ in the room. So, I was originally going to do this episode at the end of May, but then I realized it's Memorial Day weekend, and some people have decided at the time that they were just going to go out and do stuff since... At the time I'm recording this, they were beginning to lift restrictions. And I decided to hold off on that. And then, after Memorial Day, for lack of a better word, everything went sideways. And it started in Minnesota, so... And then it it continued for the next month. So I, I decided it wouldn't be right to drop an episode then. One, and then two... To do my part and help out, I decided it'd probably be for the best to let someone else use the bandwidth for podcasting to get whatever message they need to get out, out. So, it's now July, and we can now do this episode (laughs) that I wanted to do. So, as you know, the year is 2020, which makes this the 25th anniversary of a little show called Star Trek Voyager. Now... Because of that, and as as you know, when you hear some of my earlier episodes, I'm a big fan of going to primary and secondary sources, quoting what they said at the time. So you're going to enjoy this episode. This episode is going to start with a Kate Mulgrew interview. It's going to end with a Kate Mulgrew interview. And in between are three different specials about the making of and promoting this new show called Star Trek Voyager. So now we're going to start with this first interview, which is from, I believe, a week before Voyager premiered in January of 1995. And this is Kate Mulgrew being interviewed by Charles Gibson on Good Morning America. For those of you that are not familiar with the morning shows, the three morning shows in the United States being the Today Show on NBC, Good Morning America on ABC, and whatever they called it on CBS, (laughs) that's where stars and celebrities would go to promote movies, books, TV shows. In the tradition of Patrick Stewart and Jonathan Frakes promoting TNG, and Avery Books and Renee Abergen Juan promoting Deep Space Nine. Here is an interview Charles Gibson did with Kate Mulgrew on Good Morning America. Enjoy. It is now 10 minutes before the hour, and it has been one of the most talked about, most sought after roles for an actress on TV this season. The female captain of the latest Star Trek Enterprise, the new TV series Star Trek Voyager. When the series debuts Monday night, kicking off the new United Paramount Network, it will be Kate Mulgrew in the role of Captain Catherine Janeway, the first woman ever to man the Star Trek helm. Gentlemen, welcome aboard Voyager. Thank you, sir. Mr. Kim. At ease before you sprain something. Despite Starfleet protocol, I don't like being addressed as sir. I'm sorry, ma'am. Ma'am is acceptable in a crunch, but I prefer captain. 
And Kate Mulgrew is being beamed up to us this morning from the set of the Star Trek Voyager series at Paramount Studios in Hollywood. Good to have you with us, sir. Ma'am. Captain. <laughs> Thank you. Life imitating art. <laughs> do you have a do you have a brand new set or is there anything carried over from the from the uh, older series? I don't think there's anything being carried over. There may have been some patch-ins. But this which you see behind me is the new bridge. And I think it's uh, very elegant, very sleek. This is a ship built for maneuverability and action and uh, extraordinary adventure. And it's a slightly smaller crew as I understand it than we've had in the past. It's about 140. It's smaller. The whole thing is sleeker. I like to think of it as a silver knife or a bullet in space. <laughs> Firing and we're going to try to imitate that action in the interior of the ship as well. What were you going to say? And I was just say a silver bullet firing through space. Uh, That's right. Somewhere. I, you, you tamper with any changes in the Star Trek formula at great peril. I mean, all the Trekkies like things that carry through, carry over. Do you carry anything through? Well, the theme, the concept. I think that this is essentially a morality tale. I don't think that that changes very much. But I think now we will be introducing brand new colors. It'll be a very complex, uh, uh, intricately changed format now. Not simply because of myself being a woman, not because of the gender difference. But I think now that with this ship and its ability to go places where the other ships were not able to go, we're going to find whole new dimensions in space. This is a weighty mantle, you assume. Is it weighty? Well, I don't know, but I, it, it uh, I mean, you, I think you, it's rather grand. There are, uh, there are great fans of each of the previous captains, uh -huh. and uh, those, are, those are shoes, big shoes to fill. Yes, I feel that responsibility. But more than that responsibility, and this is absolutely true, and I know I sound a little cute when I say it, I feel an inherent sense of joy. I'm old enough now, I shall not name my age, Charlie, and I'm hopefully wise enough to understand a great thing when it happens and I feel very grateful and uh, deeply happy to be able to do this so the whole thing the whole underbelly of this opportunity of this job of this position of all of it is cushioned by a kind of marvelous sense of fortuity and blessedness quite frankly were you a Trekkie I wasn't an ardent Trekkie to tell you the truth um, I'm a, I'm a reader by nature, so I, I don't watch a lot of television, but I watched a lot of the Q episodes. Do you know who John Delancey is? No. He's a great pal of mine, and he plays a guy called Q. Uh -huh. And uh, uh, if you don't watch him, you know, you can't go to his dinner party. So I, <laughs> I, I watched those episodes. I must say I was continually impressed by the level of writing, by the veneer of professionalism. And I would sit back in my chair and think, this is a pretty excellent... And now that I'm here, I must tell you, it's absolutely true. From the very top, which is administration, to the very bottom, God knows what that is, there is an unerring, an unceasing sense of um, a need to, to meet a certain standard of excellence. And so I feel compelled every day to rise to, to this occasion. It's an epic occasion, and I feel like I must do it. You have two boys, 10 and 11, is that right? Were, were they Trekkies? They weren't. No. They will be now. Kids, they, you know? they will be now. They will be now. They better be. Are you listening <laughs> to me, children? Yes, they will be. You They're proud. You have long days in the Voyager, I gather. We have very long days. Um, I think it's part of doing something very well. That may change, but I, I kind of doubt it. The days are all right because I think of the support system here. The crew is absolutely marvelous. The directors, the DP, uh, the people upstairs, the writers. 
there's a, when everybody pulls together like this, when everybody feels as they do that we must uh, do a marvelous job, it's, it's easier. Well, you look very comfortable in the captain's suit, ma'am, sir, captain, and uh, <laughs> yeah, may you, you wear it. You may call me all of those all the time. May you wear it well. Kate Mulgrew, thanks very much. Thank you. Appreciate it. So, a couple of takeaways from that, if you were listening. Um, first of all, remember, this interview was done in January of 1995, so I have no control over the pronouns that Charles Gibson used at the time. So I need everyone to take a deep breath, just back off, take a deep breath. I had no control over that. But a couple of takeaways, if you were listening... Um, First female captain of the Star Trek Enterprise. Those are Charles Gibson's words. Um, so as you can see, in the span of 25 years, researching before an interview still was an issue then. <laughs> Second takeaway, first woman to man the Star Trek helm. Um, she could have said the first woman to helm a starship, captain a starship. Charles Gibson also brings up something that is relevant in 2020, as it was in 1995, when he says tamper with changes with great peril. Um, so even then, you had fans that were upset about Star Trek Voyager, but the difference being there was no social media, the internet, as we know, it, was in its infancy. So you had to log on with the 56K modem if you were lucky. This is 95, so it's probably a 28.8 modem. And go on to either Prodigy or AOL or CompuServe and go on a message board to complain about everything. But because everything was so niche and it was still cost prohibitive at the time, the greater fan base didn't know what was going on. So yes, it's safe to say that in 25 years, a lot has stayed the same. It's just technology has made a lot of these people more vocal. You know who you are, that one YouTube channel that all they do is clickbait. So they canceled Discovery, but they're still doing season three out of spite, but they canceled it. Makes no sense. No sense. And, I get, and it's already happening now as I'm recording this. The poster and the premiere date for Lower Decks, the new animated Star Trek series, um, came out. It's going to be August 6th on CBS All Access. And we now see what the USS Cerritos, yes, Cerritos, Auto Square, um, looks like. And already people are complaining about that. I'm like, uh -huh. All I posted, a very neutral comment going, oh, that's what a California-class starship. So not to get on a tangent, but the central plot of Lower Decks, you have the California-class starship, hence USS Cerritos, named after cities in California. And what the USS Cerritos, what their primary mission that they're tasked with is second contact. Meaning, so you have, say, either Picard and the Enterprise-D come and they make first contact with a species on a planet that has just achieved warp faster than light warp capability. And that's the formal thing. And then second contact would be, okay, so this is what, what's going on. 
So where are the cool places to eat on your planet? These are the cool places to eat on our planet. So you don't go there because they're going to kill you. You don't go there because they're going to assimilate you. Peace out. So essentially, <laughs> that's what the mission of the Cerritos is. And it's fo focusing on these four ensigns whose names I can't remember. <laughs> but don't worry, we're, we're going to do an episode leading up to the premiere of Lower Deck. So w we got that covered. In the span of 25 years, that same minority that's upset with you change anything has always existed. It's just now their voices are amplified because they can get behind a keyboard with anonymity and they can talk shirt and no one will do anything about it or the worst that will be done is either their post will get deleted or they'll be banned from the group. This is where we are in 2020. So I got off on a rant there and I didn't mean to. Um, but back to the interview. Um, so Kate Mulgrew name, name drops one of her BFFs, John Delancey who, as you know, with Voyager, we get more exploration of of not only Q, but also the Q continuum, and we see more Qs, um, starting with the episode Death Wish, which, if you have not seen that episode of Star Trek Voyager, I highly recommend watching that. That's um, one of the the top ten episodes of Voyager, in my opinion, since it's dealing with assisted suicide and how they portray that and then what is it Our, my last point would be when he says captain suit and I'm like who says captain suit that's like saying food slot oh wait someone did say food slot okay so that was the that was the our that was our first Kate Mulgrew interview. We're going to end with another Kate Mulgrew interview. You're going to enjoy it. I'm not going to give anything away about that. Okay. So next, there were three specials that were airing in the lead up to Star Trek Voyager that were all promoting the show with the cast, the crew, behind the scenes stuff. Now. As I attempted to explain back in my Apollo 13 episode on why I put all three evening newscasts together back to back to back, it's to give you a better overall picture of what is going on. So all three of these specials are covering the same material, but they're all covering different aspects of it. So if you step back, you can see a, the much bigger picture of how everything was coming together. Now, the first of the three specials was one hosted by Major Barrett Roddenberry on the Sci-Fi Network. You know, it's been three decades since Gene Roddenberry's positive vision of the future was first introduced to viewers in the original Star Trek series. Well, the show's prime directive, not to interfere with the normal development of other civilizations. It's appealed to millions. It has also inspired each series to reflect the moods and concerns of the times in which it was made. It is our own 20th century mythology, and there's nothing else out there like it. Well, now there's a new kid on the block called Star Trek Voyager. I've never seen a Federation starship that could maneuver through the plasma storms. 
You've never seen Voyager. It took quite a while in Deep Space Nine for us to find our voice, to make that show clear what the vision of that show is going to be. But I think we've hit it right off the bat with Voyager. I really mean that. The masterminds behind the new Star Trek Voyager are unabashedly pleased with their latest creation. But inventing the series was a long and arduous process for longtime Trek producers Rick Berman, Jerry Taylor, and Michael Piller. It's an interesting challenge. You know, it's, it's the same thing that the uh, crew of Voyager um, or the Enterprise face every time they uh, put their foot on the gas. They do that, don't they? Um, you, you basically face a blank page as a creator, and you're not quite sure where you're going, but it's pretty exciting. And you know you're going to face some bumps along the way, and you're going to hit some dead ends, and you're going to try to find your way out of it. Deep Space Nine Space Station successfully departs from Star Trek's usual galactic travel setting. But Paramount wants Voyager to get back to Gene's original vision to boldly go where no one has gone before. Voyager takes us to the edge of the galaxy. Uh, it will take us more than 70 years at maximum speed to get back from where we find ourselves at the end of the pilot of Voyager. Um, we're alone out there. And isn't that what Gene intended when he created Star Trek, that it was a bunch of explorers, adventurers, alone, facing the unknown? Only someone who's been hiding out in Timbuktu could have escaped the, the media hype surrounding the decision to put a woman at the helm of the USS Voyager. <laughs> you know, back when we did the pilot for the first Star Trek, I played a character called Number One. She was scrapped in the second pilot when the powers that be decided that it wasn't believable for a woman to be second in command. You know, even today, there may be some trepidation on the part of the fans. After all, Catherine Janeway is stepping into a Starfleet position that has always been dominated by strong male captains like Kirk, Picard, Sisko. But everyone at Star Trek firmly believes this is a concept whose time has come. Despite Starfleet protocol, I don't like being addressed as sir. I'm sorry, ma'am. Ma'am is acceptable in a crunch, but I prefer captain. It's a bold choice on the writer's part, but it's an appropriate choice if you think of what Roddenberry designed and what I think he aspired to. It's bold, it's clever, it's unique, and I feel very honored. For the first time in Star Trek history, a woman will be in charge on both sides of the camera. While the two male co-creators of the show, Pillar and Berman, still plan to keep a close eye on Voyager, Jerry Taylor will oversee the day-to-day -day operations of the show. I think Kate Mulgrew and I both will say, I am Captain Janeway, and, uh, and we're both right. Uh, I bring a lot of my sensibilities to the writing of it. She has brought all of her exquisite sensibilities to the playing of it. It's a very collaborative kind of thing. Shields up. On Finding the right actress to play the first female captain of a Federation starship has been likened to the search for Scarlett O'Hara. The first actress cast in the role abandoned ship early on, citing an aversion to long shoot days, of which there are many. And then Kate Mulgrew stepped onto the bridge and took command of the role and has thrived ever since. I was hired on Thursday and I came for the makeup tests and stuff on Friday. And I remember, because I had to come into the pier, Joe's, right, or someplace, and they all gave me the captions toot toot. And it was great. And I just thought, I'm going to do this. I felt welcomed and embraced by the crew from the get-go. 
Red alert. And uh, when I walked on the bridge the first time Monday morning, I felt, uh, I felt at home. There's been apprehension on the part of some fans that a female captain won't bring enough authority to the bridge of the ship. Mulgrew says that's the least of her character's problems. My concern, if anything, would be her a more vulnerable levels of being. Her compassion, her warmth, her need for contact, her conflict, her roots. Uh, all of those other dimensions which will enrich her as a woman, as well as the captain. The authority, the power, the presence, her command are inherent. Believe it or not, I am the only actor to have appeared in every TV incarnation of Star Trek, even the animated series. For 30 years, I've had the opportunity to play wonderful characters like Number One, Nurse Chapel, Luxana Troy, and, of course, the voice of the computer. And I know all too well how vital it is for Voyager to introduce a cast of personalities that will capture the viewer's attention and hold on to it for years. So uh, let's get down to business and meet some of the crew members on the USS Voyager. The fans are going to hate me now because I had no idea what a Klingon was. And I, <laughs> I turned on the show and saw Worf. This is the night before I'm going in for my test and I went, oh my god. What am I doing? Oh, there's a lot of toys around to play with. Being on Star Trek is just, it's great, because you get to play every day. The goop that we put on people's faces for makeup, the weird sets, the wild costumes, even the visual effects, which are incredibly important to the show, all pale uh, uh, to, the, to the characters that are created and the actors that play them. It's time for the years. We're preparing to be transformed. For the first time since Mr. Spock offered his logic to the original crew, a Vulcan is on board a Federation starship as the tactical security officer. Tim Russ, a longtime Star Trek buff, is the actor who landed the coveted role of Tuvok. And he's pretty sure he knows why they chose to put a Vulcan on the bridge again. Given the fact, the premise of the show, having the ship going, having to go so far away from uh, Federation space, uh, I think it may have been one of the few ties uh, to some of the older series. Uh, in this particular case, they didn't really want to tie into Deep Space or tie into TNG. So they leapfrogged, I think, to the original series to bring a character out, just so there's some kind of thread um, of, of familiarity. The Federation is made up of many cultures. I am Vulcan. Ironically, Russ had the opportunity to perform with Leonard Nimoy, the Sultan of Vulcans, in a college production of Caligula. Since moving to Hollywood, he's had guest roles on The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, and the recent feature, Generations. But he's utterly amazed about landing a permanent position on Voyager. I've had uh, pilots, I've had on-air series before. Any one of those things could have happened. And uh, why this one? I mean, it's uh, destiny. There has to be something else going on there. Star Trek's chief engineers, from Scotty to Geordi to O'Brien, have all had distinctive personalities. And Voyager continues that tradition, only this time, the job is in the hands of a half-Klingon, half-human female named Belana Torres. Roxanne Biggs Dawson is the actress who plays Belana. And she not only has to master Trek's tech talk, but must do it convincingly through a facial prosthesis. I, I couldn't pass a mirror without going through something when I first 
started wearing this. It was very strange for me. And now I'm so used to it, I find it odd when people look at me as if I'm a strange being. I forget that I have it on. It's become so natural in a way. Damage report. Shield at 60%. A few line interruption attempting to compensate. The Bellana Torres character is written as someone who is openly ashamed of being part Klingon. But the abrasive nature of the species has allowed Biggs Dawson to tap into her own deep-seated emotions. You can use those sides of yourself that you normally aren't allowed to let out. Those warrior sides, those, those angry sides, those, those, quick, those quick to anger sides. And, uh, and imbalance it with the human compassionate um, uh, emotional side. Garrett Wong's character is Harry Kim the young operations officer fresh out of Starfleet Academy. Only a few years out of school himself, the actor's biggest claim to fame thus far has come from playing Margaret Cho's boyfriend on the sitcom All-American Girl. A lot of these people have resumes which are, you know, longer than my leg, and I come in here and, um, what have I done? I was Margaret Cho's boyfriend on the first episode, hi! And everyone else is just this ex expansive resume, and it gets a little intimidating, but it's good for the character, because Harry Kim is the, the young upstart, you know? He's the rookie. I can modify our subspace communications band to accept the probe as a booster. As the first Asian-American on the bridge since Mr. Sulu, Wong knows comparisons are inevitable. But this heartthrob in training has more important things to concern himself with at the moment. Well, it's scary because it is. It, I do have to be somewhat of a role model now. I mean, there, there are so few Asian Americans, period, male or female, on TV in the status of being seen every week. You know, it's very Margaret Cho and myself. And I, I played her boyfriend in the first episode of her thing, which is kind of funny. I'm sorry. This isn't a passenger ship. Of course not. We won't be passengers. We'd be valuable colleagues. 19-year-old Jennifer Lean is the youngest cast member on Voyager. Fittingly, she plays Kess, a one-year-old female from an alien species called the Ocampo. It's, it's like any, any species in the beginning of its life. It's brand new to everything, so it adds a different perspective. Also cruising on the USS Voyager will be Doc Zimmerman, the ship's holographic doctor, the mess officer Neelix, an alien who hails from a never-before-explored galaxy the handsome lieutenant Tom Paris, descended from a long line of Starfleet legends. And finally, First Officer Chakotay, the fearless Native American leader of the McKee. This group is going to be fascinating to watch in action. If Michael Westmore has run Alien Central from his makeup lab on the Paramount lot since he signed up for a tour of duty on Next Generation seven and a half years ago. Oh, this third-generation Hollywood makeup artist still cooks up the creatures for each and every Star Trek project. Now, he's been working on Voyager since last July, and here's a sneak peek at some of the results. Neelix. Good to meet you. The uh, aliens on Voyager all have to be new because we wound up in a, a different part of space that they're trying to come back from. And one of our main characters here is Neelix, who's a Talaxian. And with a Neelix character, in my original thoughts for him, and it was the last one I, I designed for the, the new show, I had in mind something between, to get the feel of a warthog and a meerkat. Uh, with the Ocampas, which is Kess, and the Ocampa ear is a, a small ear like this that kind of fits back at an angle, at a 45 degree angle, back across the head. 
Michael Westmore's aliens are uniquely and distinctly Star Trek. And the reason is simple. Gene Roddenberry wanted his aliens to always possess some degree of humanity so that viewers could more easily relate to these strange-looking individuals. And I believe Michael Westmore is doing an incredible job carrying out Gene's wish. Our characters aren't really copied, or we're not trying to copy somebody else. Um, with Gene Roddenberry's edict of wanting to see the humanity in the face, we always try to leave something. No matter how big a mask may be, there still gets very thin down around here where if they smile or they do something, it comes through. Action, please. One challenging aspect of Westmore's job is showing actors how to befriend their prosthetics. After all, many aren't used to wearing a large slab of rubber on their face during a performance. Learning how to use a mask is something that has been very exciting for me because when you're working inside of it you don't know how much of you is getting swallowed up how much bigger or smaller you have to make it but the kinds of adjustments that you need to to do and then as you as you learn to live in it it, it actually gives you liberties to explore things in a much broader fashion this is where the process of constructing an alien mask begins. Makeup artist Gil Mosco mixes liquid foam rubber, adds dye, shoots it into a mold, heats it, and hopes for the best. Aha! It's a perfect Ferengi. The quality of this foam has a, a stretchiness and a believability. It's not stiff like the older things from the 50s. If you remember old horror movies, when you saw uh, creatures or monsters, they always looked like they were wearing a thick rubber suit. And here we try and make them look like it grew that way. Every principal alien character gets a new mask each week of production. And when you consider the time and effort that goes into creating each individual mask, it's easy to see why Michael Westmore has made himself indispensable to Star Trek. We try to get several days use out of them because it takes so long to prep this to put the, the paint on it. Each one of these dots is hand-painted in here with an airbrush, and it, it takes a while to do one, and we paint up two at the same time. Gene always said, when we reach Utopia, we'll have infinite diversity and infinite combinations. Sticking with that simple belief has kept the aliens of Star Trek the best in any universe. Meanwhile, in the bustling Star Trek wardrobe department, Robert Blackman and his staff have been hard at work sketching designs, cutting cloth, and stitching the fabric for the Voyager costumes. And they run the gamut from functional to flamboyant. One of the characters that we have in Voyager, um, our regular ones, is Neelix, who is an alien. And when we first um, see him in the pilot, he's actually in a, a ship in which he's um, scavenging. Um, <clears throat> the coat is my favorite, because it is this very weird fake fur. We only use fake fur. And we do all of this with sort of weird things with soap and gesso and all kinds of other things to make it look like it's old and then overpaint it and over dye it. It's good to see you too, Chakotay. Certainly the hardest thing, which I've said um, a lot, is doing just the, the Starfleet civilian clothes. It's the hardest thing to do. And I always kind of get those, oh, pajamas. No, not pajamas. Don't do pajamas on me again this week. Even Starfleet officers get to unwind once in a while and slip into some off-duty apparel. Viewers can catch a glimpse of Captain Janeway in a pair of pink silk pajamas in one upcoming episode of Voyager. The point is, is we, I, what I'm trying to do is we see this woman so much in very tailored, very sort of uniformed, mannish, in a way, clothing. And when we get to 
her and a, as, a, as a woman in just regular clothing, I, I don't want it to be overly provocative, but I want it to be very feminine and essentially have a certain sensuality about it so that we realize that she is, you know, a, just an average human being on the planet with the same drives and so on and so forth as anyone else. Star Trek's wardrobe department is actually larger than Paramount Studios' main wardrobe department. That's because the Star Trek world demands around a thousand costumes a year. Now, the makeup and wardrobe work are examples of the effort that is going into making Voyager fresh and exciting. Because in the Star Trek universe, the look of the entire show is always a top priority. And as luck would have it, during our visit, Next Generation star LeVar Burton was back on the bridge directing an episode of Voyager. <laughs> Very quiet. Just the words. Just yeah. the words. The Starship USS Voyager is an intrepid class vessel capable of holding 200 crew members. And though it's a lot smaller than the Enterprise on Next Generation, which carried over a thousand people, it's one of the fastest and most powerful starships in Starfleet. If you look at Next Gen's bridge, it's uh it's kind of a wood grain, homey feel, sort of a rustic cabin kind of thing, a cottage. And then you come into here, it's like, gunmetal gray, you know, it's very um, inspiring, you know? And anytime I bring anybody onto the set to visit, first thing, you know, I go, and this is the bridge. I bring around the corner and there's like this gasp of like, wow. It appears there's much to hold our visual interest on the interior of the ship. But what about out there in space? The Paramount is not cutting any corners in order to make this show fit into a smaller box just because of rising costs. I can guarantee you that the technical effects are the cutting edge, the most advanced, and I think that in terms of uh, the problems of cost, it's, uh, we're very lucky that Paramount has supported this with the budget we've got. Star Trek Voyager has generated a generous amount of excitement on and off the set. Jerry Taylor knows discerning fans have high expectations for anything with the name Star Trek on it. But she's so confident about this show that she's already conjured up a dream review. That was a great story. Um, we think that this is a rip-roaring action-adventure yarn with a lot to think about and a lot to imagine and a lot to feel. And it is, it is very much a pure entertainment. Maybe I'd do better if I had a little Klingon blood in me. Trust me, it's more trouble than it's worth. The Star Trek Voyager cast members are fully aware of the enthusiasm that has been sparked by the introduction of yet another series. But most of them have yet to consider how the show will affect their lives outside of the studio. Time has to be regimented now because I've got two children. And uh, despite all rumors to the contrary, I am a human being in the outside world. And I, you know, I need my solitude and I need to reflect and I need to refresh myself. So I don't want to stretch myself too thin, but I'll, I'll do what's necessary for the betterment of this, at least initially. And then we'll see how it goes. Fans need not fret over Mulgrew's cautious attitude concerning personal appearances. Some of her co-stars eagerly await fan contact. I like it. It's nice to be complimented, nice to be adored. I've, I've had my share of, of a little bit too far fan adoration in some other things that I've done where it's been a little scary, I think. Um, but for the most part, yes, I am ready for the conventions. As an old Star Trek trooper, my advice to all the members of Voyager would be this. Go to the conventions. Go with an open mind and an open heart. 
Meet the fans. Be yourselves. These people like you. They won't hurt you. Besides, they're paying your salaries. I hope you've enjoyed our behind-the-scenes look at Star Trek Voyager. I'm Majel Barrett Roddenberry. Well, that was a blast from the past. It was great to hear Majel Barrett Roddenberry. It's almost as if she knew we were going to need to hear some of these things in 2020 because, as she says in the special, each series is reflective of the era and issues of the time. So, people that are upset with Discovery and to an extent Picard and probably with Lower Decks and with Strange New Worlds and Section 31 and the Nickelodeon animated series Prodigy. It's almost as if she knew we were going to need to hear these words again. So I'm just glad that she hosted this special. Now, this next special was hosted by Robert Picardo, and it was, in essence, an hour-long infomercial uh, aired on the stations that would form the United Paramount Network, UPN, which happened to also be the same stations that carried Star Trek, The Next Generation, and Deep Space Nine. So all these stations made the transition from being independent stations to forming the United Paramount Network. So, this is Robert Picardo hosting this special. Enjoy. We have always set our sights on the horizon, searching with an unstoppable desire to trek across untamed lands, to explore the uncharted, to venture into the great unknown, to boldly go where no one has gone before. The next chapter in television's greatest legacy is about to launch. And here's your chance to see how it all began. Star Trek Voyager, inside the new adventure. Picardo, and I play the character of the holographic doctor on Star Trek Voyager, the fourth installment from Gene Roddenberry's popular legacy of adventures from the final frontier. What you just saw was a unique timeline of mankind's ongoing desire to explore the unknown. We're going to embark on another mission of exploration, an exciting behind-the-scenes voyage through the 24th century to look at the creation of the new television series Star Trek Voyager. We'll investigate areas of Star Trek you may never have seen before, including my personal guided tour of our new starship, an exclusive visit to a strange alien planet, and a special profile of the newest captain, Catherine Janeway. Plus, you'll meet the rest of my fellow cast members, witness how they create some of those amazing special effects, and, well, you get the idea. It's time to get this show on the road. So, let's find out how this new series came to be. Engage! I've always wanted to say that. Action! 
did was we sat down and tried to come up with ways of making it different. And for us, the key to making it different was trying to find a way to create some conflict in the show. We set the series in a very, very distant part of our galaxy, uh, a part of our galaxy so far away that at warp speed, it would take 75 years to get home. It took a long, long time. It took, so it took us weeks and weeks and weeks even to come up with the cast of characters because we found that uh, so many wonderful characters had already been done and we didn't want to exactly repeat ourselves. That's our ship. That's Voyager. Intrepid class. Sustainable cruise velocity of warp factor 9.975. In the pilot for Voyager, we actually see the ship stationed at Deep Space Nine. That's where all the various crew members come to board it to get ready to go on a mission. Uh, and they're going to go chase the Maquis, which is an outlaw group of uh, Federation colonists who have uh, decided to branch off and fight the Cardassians by themselves. Marquis ship, this is Gully Vec of the Cardassian Fourth Order. Cut your engines and prepare to surrender, or we will just... Initiating evasive pattern Omega, mark! We realized that we needed to set up some things in the last months of uh, Next Generation. Uh, specifically, we established the idea of the Maquis, who are a group of uh, freedom fighters, they consider themselves freedom fighters, some would consider them terrorists. So we did a two-part episode on Deep Space Nine and then treated it again in Next Generation. To all Maquis ships, call off your attack or we will be forced to engage you. We also established in a show called Journey's End the idea that Native Americans had left Earth uh, in around the 22nd century in an effort to preserve their cultural identity. I have the deepest respect for your beliefs and the meaning that they hold for your people. Then you can respect the fact that this planet holds a deep spiritual significance for us. The first officer of Voyager is Chakotay. Chakotay is an American uh, Indian, a, uh, a Native American, who is an outsider in a way. He has a very strong uh, loyalty to his own people, the Maquis, and that's why he leaves the Federation to help with the rebellion against the Cardassians. I guess it's sort of like the uh, southern generals that had to choose between the north and the south during the outbreak of the Civil War. You, you betrayed us for what? Freedom from prison? Latinum? What was your price this time? We have Tom Paris, who is a character who got into some trouble a few years ago. Uh, he was a Starfleet officer, not a McKee. Uh, got into some trouble, ended up in prison uh, over an incident that he doesn't like to discuss very much. They said you falsified reports. I'll tell you the truth, Harry. All I had to do was keep my mouth shut and I was home free. But I couldn't. The ghosts of those three dead officers came to me in the middle of the night and taught me the true meaning of Christmas. So I confessed. Worst mistake I ever made, but not my last. 
Rick said, you know, they were talking about casting. They said, yeah, we should get a type like uh, that Robert McNeil, who did, you know, in The Next Generation. It's kind of like, you know, Robert McNeil did in there, but, uh, you know, sort of like that, but, but not exactly. The first night I met you, Wes, I knew I wanted you on this squad. You, more than any of the rest, would understand what it means to be able to count on someone. Because you've been out there putting yourself on the line. And so they auditioned and they auditioned. And then finally one day somebody said, you know, we just can't find anybody for this part. Why don't we bring in Robert McNeil? I know those guys told you to stay away from me. And you know what? You ought to listen to them. I'm not exactly a good luck charm. I don't need anyone to choose my friends for me. Harry Kim is straight out of Starfleet Academy, a young man who has all the makings of a great Starfleet officer. And on his first mission, he finds himself whisked away from his family, his loved ones, and everything he knows, and uh, sent off to the other side of the galaxy. I'm reading a coherent tetrion beam scanning us. Origin, Mr. Kim. Not sure. There's also a displacement wave moving towards us. On screen. He's very well qualified. I mean, he, he knows his stuff. He had uh, great grades going through, you know, very graduated very top of his class. But there's that fear factor going. Captain, there's something out there. I need a better description than that, Mr. Kim. I don't know. I'm reading. I'm not sure what I'm reading. The turning point of the first episode comes after both crews are hurled 70,000 light years away. And by forcing them to team up, the producers of Voyager have created a rich source of drama for this new series. One of our crewmen is missing. A member of our crew is missing too. Belana Torres, my engineer. Commander, you and I have the same problem. I think it makes sense to try and solve it together, don't you? Anything that creates a, 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 a different tapestry for us to work on is, uh, is something that we welcome. Uh, we have a new situation here. We have new potential jeopardy uh, and new conflicts, being in a new part of space and being able to create uh, uh, unique characters and unique civilizations that we haven't run into before. Captain? Don't believe your eyes, Mr. Paris. We've only transported 100 kilometers. We're inside the array. For many years, there has always been an unspoken cast member in Star Trek lore. You won't find a name listed anywhere in the credits. In fact, the part doesn't even embody a consciousness, although I believe the crew have sometimes referred to this character in, shall we say, feminine terms. It's borderline on the simulator, Captain. I cannot guarantee that she'll hold up. I've already got a female to worry about. Her name's the Enterprise. She is one of the most recognized vessels in the universe. And since the very beginning, the USS Enterprise has seen more action than a tribble in heat. thrusters. Voyager follows a long line of legendary starships bearing the name Enterprise. But how do these ships compare in size and power, you might ask? Well, in the writer and director's guide for The Next Generation, there was a scale drawing of the Enterprise D that covered the entire Paramount Studio lot. Now that's massive. It was intended to be large enough to hold around a thousand people, including families. So when it came time to design Voyager, did the producers and designers think big? We realized that with the Enterprise, 
and then the Enterprise A, and then the B, and then the C, and then finally the D, uh, these ships kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And we thought that it might be nice to to come up with an idea of a ship that was a little bit smaller, a little bit more maneuverable. Lay in a course toward the rupture and take us out. So the Voyager is a ship that's built for action and built for speed. We're taking it into places where there are problems that, that make navigation very difficult, where the Enterprise could not comfortably go. I've never seen a Federation starship that could maneuver through the plasma storms. You've never seen Voyager. Now it's time to go where few have gone before, on an exclusive tour of Voyager to show you some of these areas up close and personal. Follow me. Great seafaring explorers throughout history have always put plaques like this on their ships, listing their crews. And the production designers of Star Trek have followed that noble tradition. They've also included a poignant quote epitomizing their journey. On the Enterprise, you would have found the words, to boldly go where no one has gone before. On Voyager, you'll find the words of the great poet, Alfred Lord Tennyson. For I dipped into the future, far as the human eye could see, saw the vision of the world and all the wonder that would be. There's lots of hallways. Always. Always. And hallways. This is the captain's ready room, and as you can see, she is an explorer in the truest sense, because she has one of these. I have no clue what it is, but it sure looks impressive. This is the new mess hall. If you're dying for a Big Mac, you may be out of luck, but you can order dozens of delicacies from one of Voyager's replicators, including tomato soup. In the original series, we watched Scotty get all worked up about those precious dilithium crystals. In our new engineering room, we've added a radical new type of technology that helps to power Voyager. This is uh, a ship that is cutting edge. It's, it's got bio-formulated um, uh, conduits, so it responds much quicker than, than other ships that we've seen. It's actually got organic parts that are built into the, uh, into the ship. And uh, one of the other qualities of uh, Voyager that becomes quite important along the way is that it has an emergency medical program. When the doctor who is assigned to be on this mission is killed, they have to call up the emergency medical hologram doctor in order to take over. Um, and this becomes a, a major character on the show. A replacement must be requested as soon as possible. I am programmed only as a short-term emergency supplement to the medical team. Well, we may be stuck with you for a while, Doc. There's no need for concern. I am capable of treating any injury or disease. No concussion, you'll be fine. Lean him up. The doctor will see you now. Come on, just say ah. This won't hurt a bit. Don't worry, I'm only a hologram. And this is where my character appears whenever the crew needs a doctor. And believe me, I am not just a doctor. I've been designed with the information from 2,000 medical reference sources and the experience of 47 individual medical officers. I am the embodiment of modern medicine. I've been programmed with everything except a pleasant bedside manner. 
But my character's human-like qualities will develop as the series progresses, and I will be given a name. Until then, I'm just a hologram with an attitude and a bit of a paranoid streak. Mm-hmm. What? Hmm? Is something wrong? Yes, terribly wrong. Your brain is not on file. Along with all the starships in Star Trek lore comes a whole arsenal of weaponry and futuristic instrumentation. Let me show you a small sample of the devices you'll see on Voyager. Of course, we all know about phasers. This is a hand phaser. Stunning, isn't it? And this is a compression phaser rifle. You might see an away team use one of these. Here's the ever-popular tricorder. These help you diagnose all kinds of stuff and come in handy when you're on foreign soil. They're picking up a signal from a combat. As a holographic medical doctor, I am constantly using a hypospray. And the medical tricorder, which comes with a detachable scanning device. Oh, gee. I better lie down. Tricorder? Medical tricorder. Ah, that's better. Ever wondered about the origins of a starship's name? Well, often the producers christen ships after famous men and women of science, renowned authors, and yes, even great explorers. Among those are the Magellan, the shuttlecraft Galileo, and the Cousteau shuttle pod. And it's interesting to note that the name Voyager has appeared on other spacecrafts. In the 1970s, NASA sent two Voyager satellites on exploratory missions into deep space. Subsequently, the first Star Trek motion picture featured a fictitious Voyager 6 satellite named V'ger. It amassed so much knowledge. It achieved consciousness itself. It became a living thing. Now let's imagine for a minute that you're traveling with a famous seafaring captain like James Cook. He's the guy who discovered the Hawaiian Islands and Australia. Don't feel bad, I had to look it up myself. You land on an exotic tropical island and suddenly, without warning, a group of strange inhabitants that seem totally alien to you emerge from the jungle. They may even be pointing sharp weapons in your direction. So what do you do? Well, unfortunately, Captain Cook's poor public relations skills got the best of him. May he rest in peace. But on Star Trek, these kinds of encounters don't usually end in tragedy. That's because Starfleet crews are always dealing with alien civilizations. And as a result, some of these cultures have become very familiar to Star Trek audiences, like Vulcans, Romulans, and those temperamental Klingons. Belana Taurus is a... Uh... Uh, one of the Maquis officers. She's uh, a woman who spent a couple of years in uh, Starfleet Academy. She attended Starfleet Academy, but did not graduate. She dropped out, and she found her way to this outlaw group called the Maquis. Damn it! I can't get any more out of it. Be creative! How am I supposed to be creative with a 39-year-old rebuilt engine? She's basically at war with herself, with the two sides of herself. She wants to be identified more with her human side and very much resents her primitive Klingon side, although she doesn't really acknowledge that that's what gives her probably an edge over a lot of uh, other people. We have a uh, Vulcan on our regular cast, a character called Tuvok, who's played by Tim Russ, a good 
point for trivia fans of Star Trek. Tim Russ was the uh, first runner-up for the role of Geordi eight years ago, uh, and LeVar Burton got it. Uh, now he is, it's the sweet revenge where he is, he's got a role now. Captain, any action we take to protect the Okapa would affect the balance of power in the system. The prime directive would seem to apply. When great adventurers like Lewis and Clark were planning their long journeys across the untamed U.S., they realized early on they could save a lot of time and energy by employing a guide, usually an Indian, who would help them communicate with the alien cultures. On Voyager, the crew employed the services of one of the most exotic guides in the history of Star Trek. Whoever you are, I found this way so first. We're not interested in this debris, Mr. Neelix. And since you're not interested in my debris, well, I'm delighted to know you. He, his living conditions, uh, when we find him, are so morose and disgusting that uh, he, he really welcomes this chance to join the crew and live in this um, opulence that they have. Good to meet you. Interesting. He knows everybody they're going to need to know to negotiate and navigate around this uh, part of the universe, so he's a good man to have on board. In the pilot episode, Neelix guides the crew to a barren planet to help find their missing friends. This gives the producers a chance to shoot outdoors and introduce a new enemy threat. I thought you said the Okampa had our people. My friends, it's good to see you again. What? Whoa, wait, yes, it's wonderful to be back with you. Uh, look, I, I must speak with your maje, the ever-wise Javid. We're here at the uh, El Mirage Dry Lake Bed in the uh, high desert of Southern California. But uh, over here, we're on a different planet. This is where the Kazan Ogla live. Um, they're an alien species that we've uh, come to visit for the uh, pilot of Star Trek Voyager. Uh, these people live on a uh, dry, desiccated uh, planet where they have no water. And uh, things are pretty grim for them, as you can see. Action. It's wonderful to be back with you, but I, I must speak with your mind. This has been an especially difficult shoot because we have so many extras that require extensive prosthesis makeup. It takes several hours in the morning uh, and uh, in hair and makeup and, and wardrobe, and then we have to transport them all out here. And then we have to keep them comfortable because of the heat out here. But it's a, it's a big logistical challenge to get everybody out here on time and, and to pull it off. And so far, we've made it. This man led us here suggesting we might find a people called the Okampa. Do you know where they are? Okampa. She is Okampa. Kes is an Okampa, and she comes from a race of people who are very uh, integral to the first two-hour episode. Uh, they're a group of people who only live uh, eight or nine years, uh, so they have a lot to take care of in a short period of time. These people rescued me. I rescued you. With their help, it would be wrong not to help them now. Neelix and Cass complement each other. They are a true team, uh, which makes way for a lot of a lot of humor and and sincerity and, and, and intimacy. Remember Jules Verne's classic novel, A Journey to the Center of the Earth. In that story, a group of explorers discover a subterranean world full of danger, strange creatures, 
and must struggle to find a way to escape it. In Voyager, our crew also have managed to find lots of trouble deep below the surface. And I mean deep. You can't just beam yourself out down there. We're underground. Once again, the producers had to search for a very large and unique location to double for this futuristic environment. By blending this huge, sterile structure with a few optical effects, the producers managed to achieve the look of a real sub-level community. Now, in this segment, we're going to look at... Red Alert! Red Alert. Oh, my God. This ship is on a collision course with a meteor the size of New Jersey. Look out! Shake the camera. I didn't fool you, did I? Lights. Well, that's why we hire some of the most skilled stuntmen in the business. And for many years, the producers have called on one of Hollywood's best to fly, fight, flail, flip and fall many a story in a single bound. His nickname, Danger. Time to do stunts. My name is Dennis Danger Madalone. Uh, Danger is a nickname given to me by actor Robert Conrad. I've been with uh, Paramount Studios for the last uh, almost seven years now. I went on TNG for five years, and then it turned into Deep Space Nine. We've been doing now for two and a half, three years, and now the Voyager. So uh, we'll be shooting to the year 2000-something, I think. And as I run out, the squiz will be blown off in the front. And as I get to here, I'll get blasted, which will send me back into this wall. Boom. And as I go down, these squibs here will go off. And then I'll crash. Now, there are two things that can really ruin your day when you're exploring the cosmos. One is an unscheduled enemy attack, and the other is one of those bizarre space fluctuations that send people flying all over the place. On Voyager, we're facing these kinds of problems all the time. And that's when Dennis performs some of his most difficult stunts. Making everything as safe as possible, that's number one. I want a great looking stunt, and I want everything to look as realistic and as hard as possible, but totally safe. Have you ever wondered what happens on a typical day in the life of a Star Trek cast member? Well, we thought it would be fun to follow Voyager's expert guide, Neelix, otherwise known as Ethan Phillips, on a special expedition. He's going to take us through a complete day of his shooting, from his first early morning makeup call to the final take of the day. And along the way, we'll show you a glimpse of all the many departments working together at warp speed to deliver this new weekly series on schedule. In fact, everybody here has already gone home, had dinner, slept a full night, and come back. This is the man who created the makeup right here, Mr. Michael Westmore. Um, I think, you know, the, the original concept of this is they wanted to keep 
you know, the character cute and likable. The eyes are like a lemur, and uh, two of the things that we thought people could communicate with was uh, a warthog type of a look. This is this is something that, that Scott came up with as far as the spots though, but doing these things, the hair type off the top of a warthog and little mutton chops that come through here. This is not the first time Ethan Phillips was asked to undergo an elaborate makeup job. A few years back, he was hired on Star Trek The Next Generation as a dastardly Ferengi doctor. Why have you removed our clothing? Females do not deserve the honor of clothing. They're as bad as humans. Look at that leer on his face. Hypothetically speaking, what's happening, in a sense, is that um, we're, we're actually shooting an episode right now. So we're shooting episode 105. Really? I've been studying my tricorder operations manual. Lieutenant Torres has brought me up to date on lithium geophysics. They're probably building sets for episode 107. This is uh, a set that is on the uh, holodeck. It's a program for uh, Captain Janeway. They're writing episode 110. Okay, page one, scene one, interior, Ren's house, night. They're dubbing episode 104, and they're working on many different episodes at once. Um, all the different departments. So we see them on Monday morning for measurements. We have a first fitting on Tuesday morning, and then they work on Wednesday morning. This is something newly introduced. It's a centrifuge. Starfleet medical laser cutter. This is an alien gazon rifle. Never hold it like this. Phaser power. Here I am in full makeup with the eyes and the teeth and everything. And um, uh, we're, we're getting ready to do a very important scene. This scene that we're about to do involves a lot of running. Mr. Paris, you and Neelix go with her and start checking them out. We need to talk to every doctor. Okay, bring the pickup, please. Bring the pickup. I'm broke now for lunch. Not, you know, I was going to go out to a hot dog stand nearby. But I don't think I better do that because if they saw the way I look, they might think that I escaped from the zoo. <laughs> While Ethan breaks for lunch, let's take a look at one department that's always putting in long hours, special effects. Ever since Star Trek first hit the airwaves in the 60s, the producers have employed some of the best technicians and creative wizards in the business. Uh, to create the visual effects you see on Star Trek, we use uh, a wide range of facilities. We use our staff at Paramount to design and supervise the work. Then we use motion control photography, which would be specialized stages with computer-controlled cameras. We have model makers that build the models. Sometimes we have uh, specialists doing matte paintings. Uh, what we're hired to do here at Illusion Arts is to uh, create shots that don't normally exist in life. Uh, for instance, uh, a science fiction city or some sort of uh, elaborate background that would be too expensive to build or to create in any other way. We also sometimes use our special effects people at Paramount, headed by uh, Dick Brownfield and Gary Monack to do our pyro work or any special uh, miniature explosion and stuff like that. I started back in, in 1963. I was a Desi Lou and um, I got involved with the first Star Trek, which was with uh, Jeff Hunter. The technology is just astounding. What, what's gone on from what we, we did on the original show, um, actually what we did on the pilot with poses and moving things and, and a lot of puppeteering work to what we're doing right now, which is we're really into some electronics. 
I'm getting you out of there, Chakotay. Not yet. Filming where no one has gone before is one of the most creative challenges for visual effects experts like Dan Curry and David Stipes. They spend hundreds of hours working out elaborate flying sequences for Voyager and other Starship miniatures. One of the uh, features that's going to be very unique on this craft, as opposed to the Enterprise, will be that the wings will raise up for the warp functions. So we will see the ship come flying along, the wings will raise up, we'll have the nice blue engine flash, warp engine flash, and then it will streak off into warp. One of the things that we've done a little different with this ship than we've done in the past is we've incorporated transparencies which are little slides of our sets inside some of the windows here so that when the camera is flying by it at closer distances, you get the feeling that inside those windows are some of the colors that are on our real sets and some multiplaning that you would get from flying by a real room. Boy, with all the 24th century technology these guys have dreamed up, you'd think they could have found a way to give my character a little holographic hair. But then again, if Picard can baldly go, why can't Picardo? Oh well, let's see how the day's progressing with Neelix. Drop that, my friend, or he dies in an instant. One more time, please. Drop that, my friend, or he dies in an instant. Come on. Okay, please. It's a wrap. Crew call for call sheet, 7 o'clock. See everybody tomorrow. Typical day. 15 hours. <laughs> Exhausted. I got another hour and a half of this stuff to come on. Then I'm done. Not bad, huh? Out of the makeup, I feel fantastic. But it's still dark, just like it was when I arrived. It's been wonderful having you people with me all day. Thank you very much. Captain's log, stardate 1512.2. On our third day of star mapping, an unexplained Captain's human Captain's log, stardate 47941.7. The Enterprise is en route to a brief Commander's end of the situation. Log, stardate 48467.3. Goldicott and I have arrived on Cardassia Prime. Thirty years ago, when Star Trek's creator Gene Roddenberry envisioned his first Starfleet captain, he wrote these words. Robert M. April, Academy graduate, a space-age Captain Horatio Hornblower, capable of action and decision which converge on the heroic. Unlike most early explorers, he has an almost compulsive compassion for the plight of others. Eventually, that character would go through a few transformations and become the infamous Captain Kirk. Gene took great care in developing a character that would not only embody the valiant qualities necessary to lead a crew, but share his ideals and emotions. And that objective continues through each new chapter of this saga. This is the captain speaking. First Federation vessel is in distress. We're preparing to board it. There are lives at stake, by our standards, alien life, but lives, nevertheless. Captain out. The first duty of every Starfleet officer is to the truth, whether it's scientific truth or historical truth or personal truth. It is the guiding principle on which Starfleet is based. Now, if you can't find it within yourself to stand up and tell the truth about what happened, you don't deserve to wear that uniform. Now, here's what the producers have written about our new captain. It is generally acknowledged that she is among the best, male or female and embodies all that is exemplary about Starfleet officers. Captain Catherine Janeway of the Federation Starship Voyager. We thought it was time to uh, put a woman at the helm. 
and to create a character who uh, was not just a, uh, a captain who happened to be a woman, but a, but a, but a woman, a, a captain who was, who was different in the ways that, that women can be different than men. So when are you leaving? As soon as I approve these system status reports. All right, then I won't bother you anymore. You never bother me. Except the way I love to be bothered. I understand. Fire phasers, evasive pattern Delta IV. I need the injector. Just hand that bag to me. It's a fine crew, and I've got to get them home. All right, let's open this hole in the ice a little wider. Initiate the tech yonder. Take a message to your people. If I ever encounter your kind again, I will do whatever is necessary to protect my people from this harvesting of yours. Any aggressive actions against this ship or its crew will be met by the deadliest force. One of the dangers in choosing a woman with a show that has a high male demographic is that the men in the audience would not accept her as a commander. So we knew that we needed to find someone who would be convincing, who had a sense of authority, who had a sense of power and presence, that you would believe a crew of Starship people would follow anywhere. I'm aware everyone has families and loved ones at homes they want to get back to. So do I. But I'm not willing to trade the lives of the Okumba for our convenience. We'll have to find another way home. What other way home is there? Who is she to be making these decisions for all of us? She's the captain. She's going to be out there. She realizes that they're in a unique situation, that this is more like a family than a crew, and she's going to have to put herself out and kind of get down and dirty with the crew. Report! Hull breach, deck 14. Comlines engineering are down, trying to reestablish. Repair crews, seal off hull breach on deck 14. Will you stay with him until help arrives? I'll be back for you. Paris to Janeway. We found him, Captain. Don't wait for us. Get them to safety. What could be more special than a female captain, where no woman has ever gone before? And also, what I think that th what they've given her, which is to required courage, and I think uh, I, I think that it, it's it's really something to to allow her to be very deeply a woman, and at the same time to raise her above that, to this level of of expertise and and power. You don't have what I need. I don't know what you need, and frankly, I don't care. I just want our people back, and I want us all to be sent home. Well, now, aren't you contentious for a minor bipedal species? This minor bipedal species doesn't take kindly to being abducted. We're looking at 400 years in the future, so there has to be uh, an inherent erudition. I'm an expert scientist. I am at the top of my field. This embraces command, authority, greater than any other man or member of the Starfleet. But it need not exclude, nor shall it, warmth, vulnerability, compassion, rapport, and camaraderie. And all of these elements are within her. I spoke to your family before I left. They miss you. As I do them. I'll get you back to them. That's a promise, Tuvok. Well, now that we've met the entire crew of Star Trek Voyager, 
Let's join them on their first daring mission as they try to solve the mystery which has sent them 75 years from home. Red alert! We're on the other side of the galaxy. I'm gonna try and take some heat off your tail. What are they doing to us? End medical holographic program. Come with me, we'll find your people. There's only one other way out of here. Get down! You have made an enemy today. I strongly suggest you get us out of here. Six to beam up. Get out of here, Paris, before the whole thing comes down. Shields at 60%. In minutes, and I'll be destroyed. Now! T.S. Eliot once said, the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. That's a great way to look at the universe of Star Trek. After several hundred episodes and seven motion pictures from the final frontier, you might think, gosh, how many more stories are left out there? Well, here's one way to look at it. Only 4% of the galaxy had been charted during Captain Kirk's initial voyage, about 11 billion stars. Only 19% had been charted at the beginning of the next generation. So, do the math. There's a heck of a lot of stars out there just waiting to be explored. And just as many thrilling stories waiting to be told. With that in mind, the producers and writers of Voyager have vowed to uphold Star Trek's ongoing quest to deliver fresh adventures and thought-provoking dramas that comment on the human condition. We're explorers from another galaxy. We're explorers, too. Most of the species we've encountered have overcome all kinds of adversity without a caretaker. It's the challenge of surviving on their own that helps them to evolve. It comments on the way we are a lot. And uh, the, very, uh, the original series were like this a great deal. And I think that, that uh, the, the, uh, the torch has been carried into these uh, Deep Space Nine and Next Generation as well. I think people are intrigued by that. I think that the people love creating an alternative reality. They do it. People do it. People do it all the time. But this is an accepted way of doing it. This is a very popular way of doing it. It's fun. It's interesting. It's, it's a universe within itself. It has um, uh, integrity. It is respected. And you step on board knowing that you, your role is not only to create, but to continue, to continue the legacy. And that's an amazing feeling. We're alone in an uncharted part of the galaxy. We have no idea of the dangers we're going to face. But one thing is clear. We'll continue to follow our directive. To seek out new worlds and explore space. Perhaps Star Trek appeals to our continuing desire to explore the unknown. As you saw in the opening of our show, that desire has been with us for a long time. And since the last remaining source of exploration is the final frontier, we can look to shows like Star Trek Voyager to fuel our pioneering spirit. I'm Robert Picardo. Thank you for joining us. See you out there somewhere. So, as you can tell, of the three specials that you're going to hear in this episode, this one hosted by Robert Picardo is the best one in terms of overall information about Voyager, behind-the-scenes stuff. This is the best-produced one of the three specials. So, this final special we're going to hear is hosted by Robert Duncan McNeil, and Voyager had already premiered when this special aired, because they do interviews with the cast at the red carpet premiere of Caretaker, 
So, this is Robert Duncan McNeil hosting a special on E! Enjoy. Name the only television series to appear on the cover of TV Guide before the editors of the publication could even see the show. Well, the answer's easy, of course. Star Trek Voyager. Hello, I'm Robert Duncan McNeil, and this is E's Journey Inside Star Trek Voyager. Now, on the series, I play Lieutenant Tom Paris, and during the next 60 minutes, my fellow castmates and I are going to take you on board and behind the scenes of Voyager to show you how we put the action into our high-flying adventure. For two wide open weeks, we let camera crews follow us inside, outside, and all around our state-of-the-art set to capture this exclusive look at what makes Voyager fly. If you're not wearing a spacesuit, get out of the corridor. You'll see Tim Russ grow his Vulcan ears, Ethan Phillips lose his alien teeth, Roxanne Biggs Dawson will model the latest in Starfleet fashion, while Mr. Blackwell sizes up Star Trek style as only he can. I see no hope for the future. Plus, we'll give you a guided tour through the most spectacular chambers of the Voyager, including the bridge, courtesy of the captain herself, Kate Mulgrew. I'm always here, dang. You wanna screw around with me, you're in trouble. But before we get to that, a quick note. This show, of course, will be Klingon friendly, so the graphics you see throughout will appear in both Klingon and English. And here's an example. This says, uh, I wouldn't even attempt to read what that says, but in English, it translates to, where's the bathroom? Which, of course, can come in real handy when you're lost 70,000 light years from home like we are on Voyager. But, let's get things underway by answering a question almost 30 years in the making. After three previous Star Trek television shows, not to mention seven motion pictures, why have audiences so eagerly beamed aboard Voyager? Well, I happen to know a few people who might have an idea. <laughs> The possibilities, the wonder, a completely different and new world. The looking forward and progressing, seeing what we might be like in the future uh, is, is intoxicating to people, I think. It's imagination combined with a deep and fine intelligence. We're getting ready to leave. Let me show you to the bridge. Originally, when it first came out, that was one of the first really where people got really gung-ho into science fiction. They like the optimism and, uh, you know, the, the optimistic view of the future. Actually, I don't have an answer for why it's so enduring. That's, I, I was trying to make something up, but it, it didn't work. So, anyway. Next question. Well, it's the effort that counts, Garrett. While the reason for Star Trek's enduring appeal may be open to interpretation, the success of the franchise is indisputable. The original series is still airing throughout the world nearly 30 years after its debut. The Next Generation earned 18 Emmy Awards in its seven-year run, and Deep Space Nine logged the highest debut in syndication history. Together, these programs set a lofty standard for our show to attain. Let's try that again, please. But Voyager has proven worthy of its mission, capturing millions of viewers from the moment it launched. But while matching the success of the previous shows was important, so too was separating Voyager from its predecessors. premises that were different. One was that was a female captain. One was uh, was the whole idea of these maquis, these, these rebels. And the third is to take the ship, and to take its crew, and to fling them to the other side of our galaxy. Somewhere along this journey, we'll find a way back. We're still dealing with the same optimistic future, but we've thrown our people off into a place where they're alone. 
So without the support systems, without without the ability to call for help, without the advice of Starfleet, they are back to basics. Back to basics, but with a groundbreaking captain, played by Kate Mulgrew. She replaced Jean-Vierre Bougeot just weeks before shooting began. But Kate had little trouble stepping into Janeway's jumper. It was total ownership, or it was nothing. And it emanated really perfectly naturally from me. And then I sort of looked around and everybody was going, I think we might actually have to something to do here next week. It, it suited me. It feels good. All senior officers report to the bridge immediately. With Kate leading the way, we all managed to slip easily into our characters. Often actors grope for their characters. It takes them, if not a few episodes, sometimes a season to really sort of try things and test it out and see who they are. These people, for whatever reason, knew instantly who they were and what they were about. As for how we got up to speed so quickly, we all give credit to one essential element. The care that the producers put into the writing. The stories are so well written. Well, there's no question that uh, the writing is superior. It creates thoughts in my mind, and I know if it's creating thoughts in my mind, or at least I hope, that, that it's going to, to please the audience and the viewers. The folding of space should create a subspace residue. If we can detect one, we might be a step closer to knowing how the trajectory works. Any Star Trek episode, I would say, uh, is, is the hardest kind of writing I have ever done. Uh, the, the demands are extraordinary. Uh, it, is, it is a well-crafted, thoughtful, intelligent human drama. And every episode features the most torturous, tongue-twisting, technical terminology heard in televisions. If we could modify the deflector array to emit phase neutrinos, we could create a big enough bubble. It's called Technobabble, okay, and it comes in threes, all right, so you, uh, coherent tetrion beam, um, polarized magnetic variation, and if they really want to mess you up, they give you five, the writers will give you five in a row, it's a single class three humanoid organism, and that's five in a row. I had a line once, and we were running out of camera, and we were at the end of the day, and everybody wanted to go home, and I couldn't say spatial distortions, I kept saying spatial distortions. What I had to say uh, yesterday, I had to say, Sakaras uh, uh, has a mantle of tetrahedral course 20 kilometers thick and then another time i was supposed to say uh, subspace beacon and i kept saying subspace subspace bacon the crystalline structure of the mantle serves to focus and amplify the trajectory field is that the rumor that I, i'm the one that has the most problem um probably so yeah every script has a pronunciation guide because uh, whether it's an alien being or race that has to be fanatically you know, marked out so that everybody says the same thing. Accuracy, without a doubt, is a top priority on Voyager because if we make a mistake, any mistake, our fans, the Trekkers, will let us know about it. And they do call us on um, They have all of the, the, the elements in particular in terms of consistency about what we do, how we do it. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to dictate to us because we don't believe that that's the process that we work under here. But they influence us and we, we listen to them. I just try to do my work the best I can and, and hope that by doing that it will please them. But when you have fans that are that appreciative, it really is an honor to play to them. Mr. Paris, set a course. Throughout the history of Star Trek, we've gotten to know dozens of intriguing life forms, from Vulcans and Romulans to Ocampas and Cardassians. But our series features a life form unlike any other seen before, and its name is Voyager.
It's got these bio-neural fibers that have replaced the standard conduits that, that run throughout the, uh, the ship. So there's a biological component to this ship. Biological components. Welcome to the Voyager, a living entity, a vast, complex monument to Hollywood's limitless engineering and special effects prowess. I want the ship to look like a ship. At the same time, we want it to look like Star Trek. If someone is flipping the channels well, then, and they go past this, they should be able to recognize it as a Star Trek uh, episode. There's no mistaking the Voyager as a Federation starship, but this model comes with some interesting options. Well, Voyager will be a smaller ship than the Enterprise was, but um, it will be, a, a, say, a newer model. Uh, much more action-oriented ship. It's a, it's a definite military ship uh, as opposed to a, an exploration vessel. There won't be families on board and it will have a, a sleeker, more aggressive look than the Enterprise. The interior sets at Paramount Studios are incredibly detailed. I love the mess hall set with the big, you know, with the endless stars outside the windows. It's really cool. I think the bridge, I think we have the best bridge of any, uh, forgive me, but of any, any starship we've had so far. We have a terrific bridge. The room that impresses me the most is the ready room. That's the, where the captain uh, kind of retires in between bridge assignments. And uh, uh, I like that room because it's very, uh, it's got these really cool uh, seats and uh, it's really curvy and there's a great view of space and she has a really neat desk and I like to be in that room. Speaking of impressive sets, take a look under Voyager's hood. Here we are, this is engineering. This is the hunting grounds of Torres, the bowels of the ship. And we're gonna head on over to one of the most important parts of the USS Voyager. This is the warp core. Uh, the state that it's in right now, this is at impulse power. And right now, let's go to warp. There we go, warp power right there. Warp power is when you are bending space. You have warp one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. The highest is 9.9. .9. You can't be warp 10, because if you're warp 10, that means you are at every point of the universe simultaneously. We have inst uh, ATM machines over here, actually, in case you need to get some cash. There are little stickers you can, you can see up here with, um, <laughs> they're just saying, this says access panel, but underneath there, there's always uh, some type of funny message like this one it says uh remember no matter where you go there you are this last one is uh just sit right back and you'll hear a tale a tale of a fateful trip that started from this tropic port aboard this tiny ship you could probably fit the entire minnow on the voyager's bridge the most detailed set on the starship you really put a lot of time in, in uh, development of the bridge and it was very exciting watching it come together you know the pieces i mean just when it, when they come in with a new railing and everything and you know get to see it the workmanship i think uh, the uh, uh the crews have done excellent job the craftsmanship is i think it's top rate voyager special effects people know all about craftsmanship the technology is just astounding what what's gone on from what we we did on the original show um actually what we did on the pilot with hoses and moving things and and a lot of puppeteering work to what we're doing right now which is we're really into some electronics that's putting it mildly these days the buzzwords are computer generated imaging but that's just a bit of what it takes to create say 
an explosion in space. You have to have the crew photographing the model, lighting the model, designing the shot, and we have to transfer that to digital video, composite the shot, then we have to set up an explosion, photograph that with a high-speed camera, optically superimpose that with the ship. Somewhat simpler, but equally as effective, are the matte paintings rendered for the show. What we're hired to do here at Illusion Arts is to uh, create shots that don't normally exist in life. Uh, for instance, uh, a science fiction city or some sort of uh, elaborate background that would be too expensive to build or to create in any other way. Set, building a set, for instance, would be way too expensive. So they come to us and we can create these environments you know, cheaply and relatively quickly. And uh, you know, the, the, the end result is this fantastic uh, vista for, for relatively little money. All in all, some pretty heady stuff. But on the Voyager, state-of-the-art is the only way to fly. Here's another little trivia tidbit for you. Did you know that every weekend in at least four different U.S. cities a Star Trek convention is held? <laughs> Lucky for us, when it comes to Trekkers, there's no such thing as too much Star Trek. We all know about the legendary allegiance of Trekkers, but they still took us by surprise when they sent fan mail before the first episode even aired. It's funny because some of them are like... Some of the letters are like, you know, I followed your career for the last 10 years. I'm like, oh, let's see, I was, what, seven then or something? You know, <laughs> I wasn't even acting then. You know, but for the most part, they're very nice. They're very cordial. It really was welcome to our world now. And a lot of it was, I mean, it's very articulate, um, really wonderful, welcoming wagon. That's what they were. It was a welcome wagon. It was great. I have personal friends who are great Star Trek fans, but I haven't met the hardcore Trekkers yet. So I can't really tell you at this point how I feel. I'm, uh, I, I have a mixture of uh, anticipation and, and dread. <laughs> well, ready or not, Robert will get his chance to meet the hardcore Trekkers at any one of the hundreds of Star Trek conventions staged each year. It's great, I think, to have something in, in one's life that is something that you really spend a lot of time and energy doing and, and it's, everybody has it you know, marathon runners have it they have, they have to run that's all that's their religion and for those who are believe in organized religion that's what they do a lot they spend all their time in their life so these fans spend a lot of their time focusing on this in addition to meeting their favorite star trek actors conventions also give trekkers a chance to catch up on the latest collectibles we do t-shirts and more of the souvenir novelty kind of items that uh, the fans want to come to a convention and buy berman's firm creation entertainment is responsible for more than 200 star trek products that are sold at the various conventions since 1971 Berman has been staging these gatherings, meeting fans from all over the world. We're getting about 400,000 people a year, so uh, it's, it's quite, quite a nice endeavor. All ages, all types, doctors, lawyers, uh, school teachers, uh, runs the, it runs the gamut, really does. It started as a hobby and grew into a business, and uh, I can't think of a better way to earn a living. Participating in a marketing campaign is a new experience for most of us. So is being the model for an action figure. The actors love to say that they're not impressed by that, but the minute they get their own action figures, they take them into their trailers, and they sit and they look at them, and they explore them. I suppose when it comes, when I see a Neelix doll, I'll think about it. I don't know what I'll think, though. <laughs> I have to wait to see what happens. It would just be sort of a curiosity, sort of a thing. It's, oh, does it look like me? Oh, okay. it does, and then that would be it. I tell you, I have a daughter who's four and a half. I have two kids and, and a nine-month-old. But my daughter since she started watching some of the shows 
has become obsessed with Tuvok. Tuvok is the hottest character to four-year-olds, so I would have to say Tuvok's going to be the big seller. If you've got your eye on one of the action figures but can't make it to a convention, try calling 1-800-TREKKER. That's right. There's actually a phone service where you can buy anything from a holographic photo to a burner cover. While all this merchandising can be dizzying for an actor, the outstanding chemistry of the cast keeps us all focused. These nine actors have melded in a way that is something you would expect after two, three years. And they did it almost immediately. I think the actors all like each other, and everyone has a nice sense of humor, which is unusual. Robert Beltran has a completely uh, unexpected sense of humor if, you, if you've only seen his character. This we carry... Um, the um, the Voyager crew, uh, female crewmates um, really like <laughs> cut that. And John uh, Phillips, Ethan Phillips, Ethan John Phillips, we all call him John, uh, is uh, also is extremely funny. He plays uh, Neelix. I, I did no audition. My mom was one of the producers, and um, they like you know they just did it as a favor. There were like other qualified actors who were probably better for the part, but like I had contacts and stuff. I don't mean to make it sound like only the men are funny, you know, it's just I only find men funny. It's just one of those things, you know. Find women cute and men funny. I mean, there's some, you know, some funny women out there. My relationship with these guys is sublime to a man. That's a very rare thing. You probably aren't going to hear that again for a long time. If you've ever heard it, you should be like fast. There's usually somebody who's a little rocky, a little shaky, the chemistry's off. This is not the case. Perhaps the ultimate sign of a show's popularity is when words or phrases from the program become a part of our everyday language. Think about the influence of Star Trek. At one time or another, you've probably said space, the final frontier, or to boldly go where no one has gone before, or initiating evasive pattern Omega Mark. Okay, well, maybe not that last one, but there is one other classic Star Trek line that no one can resist, not even a Klingon. Well, here we are. This is the transporter room. This is the transporter pad that we're on right now. And as you can see, we can beam in a uh, one, two, three, four, five. Our family of six can come in here. This was the original transporter ceiling used in Star Trek One, the first film. They sort of revamped it for uh, for us, but I think that's a kind of neat piece of Trek history and trivia for everyone to know. Okay, why don't you come up here for a second and show you some stuff. Um, here we are. This is the this is the console area where uh, the transporter chief, whoever that may be at the time, uh, resides. Um, stuff on the wall. Oh, this is kind of neat. This is one of the cooler effects, I guess, that's working. What it does is... Uh, just tells me in terms of whether or not the uh, transport is going okay kind of a thing. This is the sensor, touch sensor pad, which beams somebody in, beams somebody out. Oh, look how beautiful that looks. Why don't we just take a look, take a last shot of that. Look at that. Look at the yellow lighting right there in the blue. It's very color-coordinated. Someone's altered the security subroutines. Why would anyone do that? Never mind. Beam me down. Are you crazy? Security will spot you before you even get there. 
As Voyager continues the Star Trek tradition of exploring new frontiers, some members of the cast are confronted with a new challenge. You got a pretty strong blue. Strong enough that if you don't get it off, it'll be on there for two weeks afterwards. Um, so you can't pull these off that easy. Once they're on, they won't come off, at least not without a few layers of skin. I'm usually given three hours prior to set call. So whatever is the first scene that I'm in, they create this. You know, I don't do this, they do this. There's a lot of work that has to be done. I just go into my trailer and I fall asleep and uh, I make up artist as the work. So I wake up and I look like this. It's kind of amazing. I don't really know it's there until we remove it because basically my forehead and scalp go numb. And well, <laughs> they, they do know. And it's not until it's removed that I can really feel the skin again. So it's not really a problem. I really, really wish that I had prosthetics because I prefer to wake up at three in the morning because that's usually when I do the my best concentration and, and so much more into the day when I when I can have no sleep. I tell you I feel fine about not missing about missing it. Um, you know, some of those guys, like Ethan Phillips, who plays Neelix, they're in for three, four hours before anybody else gets here. Uh, I've arrived at the shed at 3.30 in the morning to get the makeup on for, for a 6, 6.30 report to the shed. So 3.30, and I live in, uh, my home is in Santa Barbara, so I'm getting up at about 11 o'clock in the evening, shower, drive here. I have very long days. I will make the exchange with Jared Hotel. Call time is a little later for Tim Russ, who plays Tuvok the Vulcan. Six o'clock this morning. Actually, earlier in the week, it was more like five. Um, always dark, usually in the winter. So, uh, well, about 45 minutes to do all this. Mark Shellstrom uh, here is uh, the artist at hand. And, uh, you know, I do have to put like several colors together to make him look natural. Part of Tim's makeup ritual involves attaching his Vulcan ears. It's not a large appliance, but it takes time because you have to blend them to the ear so that they not only match the, the color of your skin, but they also will match the texture. When I first started wearing them, I forgot they were on, so I put an itch. I Tim's ears are custom made. They are made to order on multitude's ears. And uh, we have four molds with around four pairs of ears a day. We have another lab over on stage 10 that we've had since day one with Next Generation. And that's where all the foam work and the plaster work is done. Latex for Tim's hair. 
because I just trimmed, you know, uh, the edge here in front, certainly, so that it's, uh, I take the temples out, the temples in here, but, so that there's a, a, a consistent smooth hairline. I've got to shave the tips of the eyebrows right here on the edges. It's a very neat trick to get these things on. It drives you crazy, man, if somebody else put liner on the bottom of your eye. It's, it's like sitting in a dentist chair. That's it, boys. That's the works. Transformation is complete. Isn't up yet. See? Live long and prosper. Always take your coffee with you. How would you like to try on one of these? A genuine Starfleet uniform. Doesn't look too uncomfortable, right? But Take it from me. Trying it on and spending 12 straight hours working in it are two entirely different experiences, as you'll see coming right up. But first, we have an appointment to keep in sickbay, and you don't want to keep Doc Zimmerman waiting. Here is the sickbay. Uh, these are the bio beds where my patients uh, lay down, and I treat them, and I push these buttons here. And this is my favorite. This is what we refer to as the clamshell bed. Uh, the patient lies down here. We cover them with this sort of lame blanket here. And a clamshell comes up over them and tells us, you know, whether or not they've had seafood for lunch, I guess. I don't know. Sometimes they say laughter is the best medicine. But when you're ill on the Voyager, it's best to see the doc. He's completely exhausted. Can some of this wait until he's had a chance to rest? Ah, uh, yes. I learned quite a bit about uh, medicine working on Star Trek. Um, unfortunately, it's not medicine that applies to the 20th century, so I can't really share it. I could share it, but you people simply wouldn't understand it. This is a medical tricorder, and with the detachable scanning device, it will tell me absolutely anything I want to know about whatever tissue that I wave it over. I take them out with a thingy, and I place them here, and then this lights up, and then I kind of manipulate these thingies, and I draw some conclusion that you believe. This is something that we put on people's limbs um, to cure them in some way. Do you have any questions? Anne, action please. No, they never let me see him. They interrogated me for almost two days straight. They asked me a lot of questions about the Numeri. Being a patient in sick bay is uncomfortable to say the least, especially when you're injected with one of those big space needles. But not as uncomfortable as trying to get into our spacesuits. Roxanne, you may not recognize me. I play Belana Torres on Voyager. We are about to go into wardrobe now for a fitting. I'll take you right in. This is where we get fit into all of our costumes. I'm going to get fit into another uh, Starfleet uniform, which will be exactly like the one I wore in the last episode and the episode before and the episode before that, because I basically wear the same thing every time. So um, I'm going to go get changed right now, and I'll see you in a little bit. Roxanne, how are you today? Hey, Bob. This is Bob Blackman, our costume designer. He's going to see if uh, 
this actually fits. What do you think? While Roxanne is being fitted, we asked the renowned Mr. Blackwell to illustrate his thoughts on Star Trek fashion with the help of a telestrator. Well, here we have Star Trek 1966. The cigarette girl at the Copacabana. Isn't this a thrill? Look what they did. From a jewelry neckline to a mock turtle. I feel it's boring. I don't find it boring at all. I actually find it interesting. And I think also for the actor, what happens is that there is a, enough anonymity with just a color bar at the top that draws focus to their face. I've got her in the same outfit. I'm sorry. As Captain, I would have demanded a better look at wardrobe. Well, to each his own for fashion and space, but a comfortable fitting wardrobe is another story. These stirrups sometimes will, we will um, undo them to allow more flexibility in, in the leg. Part of it is, is how to keep, I mean, the, the use of the stirrup, the elastic stirrup, is to keep a very clean, straight, vertical line to them. Mm -hmm. Now, they're not comfortable, and you sit with those things, and there's tension all over your thigh because the pant can't go but up. But they look marvelous. But they look fabulous. They have a good butt to be on Star Trek. There's just no doubt about it because the costumes are tight. It is not the most comfortable for me um, because I like to wear clothes that are very relaxed and very casual. I've got a little pocket in my pants for, for my teeth in between takes. Um, and, uh, yeah, well, you know, I don't really have anything to carry around except for the keys to my trailer. Who got a pocket sewn in? I better be talking to my staff. Pocket for what? For what? For, like, wedding rings or things that they want to keep talisman close to their heart? What Bob, I would like a little pocket sewn in my uh, I don't know. I really haven't put much thought into to that question. Uh, I just sort of say, okay, this is what I have to wear. I really don't. Don't think about it too much. All I have to do is get my forehead and my Your wig on. on and exactly. And <laughs> no jewelry and you're ready to go. There we go. I'll so be sure to take the jewelry off. Absolutely. Okay, great. You look Thank great. you so much, Bob. Thank Thanks. you very much. So far during this hour, we've focused on the interiors of our ship. But as you know, we don't spend all of our time on board. After all, there are alien planets to explore. But therein lies a unique challenge. Where on earth can you find a place that can double for the planet Iconia? or Erebus Prime, or in the case you're about to see, a planet so unexplored, it hasn't even been named yet. This is a planet um, that has uh, some vegetation growing on it, and we're, we're uh, sent here to forage for some vegetation and some food. You expect us to eat that? That's the reason I brought you here, Commander. There's no better source of vitamins and minerals in this quadrant than in this ugly little root. On Earth, we're at the Bronson Caves. It's, it's, uh, it's nice to get away, and especially on a beautiful day like this. You're looking at a rare occurrence for Voyager. We only shoot on location about half a dozen times a year. One of the reasons for that is obvious. Uh, you go out into... Uh, Los Angeles of 1995, and that's what it looks like. It's very hard to find places that look like alien worlds or the 24th century. Aren't they gorgeous? Yeah. One bite'll kill you. Puff you up like a vacole fish. First, your windpipe starts to swell. And just when you think you're going to die, you're suffocating. <laughs> <laughs> okay, reset, please, Dad. 
Did you guys get the uh, the teeth popping out? Mm -hmm. Is that oh. funny? A little bit. I thought it was gum. That, that happens a lot. Does it really? Well, it's happened about five times. It's kind of funny. It's my teeth, which is really sad. You know, I have a very bad dentist. Humor helps the actors keep their cool on a day like today, when the L.A. sun heats up to 90 degrees. Well, it's tougher for me because I've got um, a colostomy bag glued to my head. Um, it's about three inches of rubber here. And so it cooks. And my head feels like a duck in a Chinese restaurant. Simmering. While Neelix simmers, his fellow voyagers blow off a little steam. It's so hot out here. Yeah. Where's the water, Jerry? Oh, I'm sorry. Where's my water? I am the water boy also. We don't know that. Um, that was in my contract. I provide Robert Beltran with food and drink. Excuse me. Thank you, Garrick. You can leave. Um, the chemistry. Speaking of chemistry, a few of the actors didn't really excel in the sciences before they worked on Voyager. Well, I'm not a science fi I wasn't a science fiction fan. I failed chemistry when I was in high school, so uh, I, I have no right to be here. All right, so he flunked chemistry. But as Voyager's resident chef, Neelix is an expert at finding nutritious delicacies. Even if it tastes so bad, Robert has to spit it out over and over and over again. But 27 times. It's actually starting to taste good. Oh, that's um, ginger root. That's, that's what it really is. Um, in, uh, in our story, it's Leola root. What we've done is to disguise these and make these look a little bit unusual is we've simply acquired ginger root, applied some interesting paint colors, also injected a little bit ahead of another, another type of a plant, vegetation, to again make it look a little bit unusual, and we came up with a Leola root, something interesting and something rather tasty. Meet prop master Alan Sims. When we're in need of foreign food, phasers, or assorted alien paraphernalia, he's the man to see. I wanted to carry on with some description of props that we designed for Voyager. I have something interesting that I, I took a lot of pride in being able to establish a, a IV. We, we sort of coined these uh, as the Sims beacon. We have a blood gas infuser. This is our Federation phaser, Starfleet phaser, which all of our away crew will always wear in a holster that attaches on the side of their belt. And along with this, more weaponry that we've come up with this season on Voyager is a Kazon rifle phaser. Tim Ross is the, the champion phase, phaser drawer right now. He's, he's very quick, but he's practiced a lot longer. Let's see, who is, uh, Bobby's pretty quick. Uh, Robbie McNeil is pretty quick. Uh, the captain's not too slow. On occasion, we, uh, we get into it. I think it just depends on who's, uh, who's playing heads-up ball and who's not. Along with a means of protection, we also require other devices like this tricorder. Evidently, from this, you can figure out where you are anywhere in the universe, uh, who you might come in contact with, what their material makeup is all about, chemist, uh, their uh, chemical makeup is. It's amazing. I don't know if you've heard this, but I have actually broken more tricorders than anyone in the history of Star Trek. I have somehow dropped or completely destroyed, I think, three, no, three tricorders. Of course, in a Voyager episode, you're gonna need aliens, too. 
And Prop Master Alan creates these as well. Yes, well, this is one of our friends. Uh, we, we do uh, have an episode where our away team lands on a planet. He's reading the Star Trek communicator right now. But uh, this is an alien skeletal life form. And it's very rubbery, is what it is. It's a latex covering. And again, with, with a unique painting process, we even gave him quite an alien skull. As you can see, it's not quite what, how we know man to be. As you can see, Prop Master Alan really loves his job. I, I just enjoy, enjoy demonstrating all of this. <laughs> I'm afraid we've reached the end of our journey inside Star Trek Voyager, so it's time to wrap up the tour of the ship. And, as is the custom in our little corner of the universe, we've saved the best for last, the bridge, and the only person truly qualified to give you a tour. Kate Mulgrew, otherwise known as Captain Catherine Janeway, of the Federation Starship Voyager, and I'm going to give you a little tour of my bridge. These gentlemen behind the camera are strangers in a strange land, but this is becoming progressively more familiar to me, if not intimate indeed. Here we are at Con Control. This is where my pilot sits, Tom Paris, and he sits here day in and day out, and he just says, just tell me when. That's his line, just tell me when. Captain. The photonic lattice has reappeared. Scan it. All sensors. I don't think anyone has, has trouble uh, following her, you know, listening to, to her orders and following them. You know, she's, um, she's very strong. My first officer, Chakote, who is the head of the Maquis, sits here. He often sits here like this. And I, ostensibly, sit in this chair. However, I so seldom sit, it's become a joke. I'm always here, saying. If you want to screw around with me, you're in trouble. Somewhere along this journey, we'll find a way back. Garrett Wong plays Harry Kim. And he sits here and looks at us with his angelic face. And we all sort of say, we're so in love with you. We can't see straight. Nobody cares what's happening to the boy. Everybody's madly in love with you, Garrett Wong. Here's a woman who has to carry the show. You know, she's a mother of two kids. And she can make it here every day. She can stand the hours. I can't. Down we go. And usually we see Bellana here. And what I love about Bellana is she sort of plays her console like a piano. Nobody knows what's going on. There's another distinctive feature on the bridge that hangs right behind Roxanne. It's a plaque that honors all the talented people behind the scenes who make Voyager a reality. For I dipped into the future far as human eye could see, saw the vision of the world and all the wonder that would be. I can't say it better than Lord Tennyson. But for how long do the members of Voyager plan to continue their wondrous journey? I would love to be doing this for as long as people will allow me to. It's been dictated in the premise of the first episode that it's going to take them 75 years to get back. So I don't think we'll be able to run any more than 75 seasons. If things continue as they are, which I'm sure they're going to, it's only going to get better and better and better and better and better. For as long as the helm will have, sir. And I hope it's a good long time indeed. I have a long way to go before I will be satisfied, I'm sure, with the, the Janeway that I want to create. So, there's time of plenty for where I need to go. Good work, Doctor. And you get up, and you go over here, Maybe you've wrapped up your day on the bridge, and then everybody just sort of quietly and uniformly goes like this. I'm not 
Saturday on the pitch. Go thrusters. Go to Red Alert. As for me, I don't plan on deserting the Voyager crew anytime soon either because, well, to be totally honest, my dad would kill me. He's a longtime trekker. Thanks for watching Inside Star Trek Voyager. I'm Robert Duncan McNeil. Hope you enjoyed it, Dad. So, as you can see, of the three specials, this one was geared more for the casual fan, non-fan of Star Trek, and was a lot more lighthearted in tone. And I realized, listening to it, that I have to explain who Mr. Blackwell was, because some of you listening are probably going, Who? In the era before the internet, this gentleman, Mr. Blackwell, he was a fashion expert, so, think of Tim, Tim Gunn from um, Project One Way. And every year he would come out with his top 10 best dress, top 10 worst dress list. And it was an annual event. And it was a big deal in the era before the internet. So, that's who he was. And that's why he was critiquing Star Trek outfits. For those of you wondering who that was. Okay, so... We started with a Kate Mulgrew interview. We're going to end with a Kate Mulgrew interview. That's all I'm going to say. I will explain afterwards. Enjoy this little nugget that I found. You guys are the best. Folks, we're going to get going tonight. My first guest tonight has already built a fine reputation as an actress, and then she innocently found herself sitting on the bridge as the first female Starfleet captain on the hit TV show Star Trek Voyager. Ladies and gentlemen, stand at attention for Kate Mulgrew. Kate Mulgrew here! This morning, uh, they were all Who on the Universal Tour. Who is that tour. man? Where is he? That Where guy? Is he? We need you on the bridge. Don't you know him? He's, he's the lead singer of Twisted Nipple, for oh. God's sakes. Now, listen, John. Yes, yes, This Kate. is not to be confused with Captain Janeway's evening bag. Yes. But I understand you have a little alien addiction. I do. So I have brought you your own personal Ferengi lunchbox. Oh, my God. This is the most This is for kids. It's the perfect gift, I guess, for a seven-year-old. The I head of an alien. Let's try to figure it out. Can it, does it know? It says something. Wait, it says something. What is he saying? I can't understand it at all. Can you understand it? No, I can't understand it. I'll kick G.I. Joe's ass anytime. What? What the? That's unbelievable. That's Thank you so much. But you have to fill it with replicator food. I certainly will. And I'm sure that this is sold in stores all across the country. I've never seen anything like that. No, I never have. That's Has anybody else seen anything like this? The head of an oh, alien in a lunchbox? No. That's for you. Put a little bologna sandwich in the man's head. And do you like roll. the Ferengi? I do like it very much. Why? I... The Ferengi. That one? That's a Ferengi. No, I, I Somebody not. told me you were mad about Ferengi. God, I can see why you're the <laughs> captain. Jeez. Are you mad about no, Ferengi? No, I get it. I'm, can I take a commercial? Yes, may. Really? Quickly. You're supposed to say, make it show, number one. Red alert. Thank yes. you. Oh, I'm the only geek here who watches Star Trek. All right, fair enough. <laughs> hey, uh, we got to take a commercial break.
I don't know. What, what are you asking here? I would ask this of the audience as well. All right. A and I do too. But why do people love rock stars, rock music so much? Well, what is that? There, there's I mean, your I heard you backstage. We have Kate Mulgrew, Captain. Oh, that's very, very good. <laughs> we have Eddie Van. Ooh, and you flew. What is that? It's an attachment. It's a, it's a what? Amazing. Yeah, you can't rock and roll. Oh, did you hear that? In the, in the midst you. of all that rock and roll, there but wasn't I Love You, Kate. That's, oh, there's another one. Yeah. Oh, he's very nice. He should come sit here. Exactly. <clears throat> Thank you. I'll fight every man in here, all right? Let's pack it down. Oh, I'm sorry. But you, you don't need the music. You're the you're the first Starfleet commander, the first female. This I'm the first a, This is a huge responsibility yeah. for you. Now, do you feel the weight of all those years? Do I feel the weight, the weight of all of, those years? Of non-female Starfleet oh, I commanders. You meant in my years. Not at all. You're a young and vibrant woman. <laughs> Thank you very much. What did you say? I said you're a young and vibrant woman. Say Please turn the notch up to ten. <laughs> now come on. I feel so happy. I'm delighted. There's an old friend of mine standing back there yeah. in that black outfit up there. Uh -huh. He's looking very dark. Right, he's looking around. A dangerous. He did a pilot with me a couple of years ago. We all thought it was going to take off. What was it called, sweetheart? Gremlins. It was called Gremlins? No, they're... No, it was called Shenandoah at the time. You get very excited. Yeah. You get all hyped. You, you think this was possibly a key to the future. Well, what, was it the whole, what was the whole idea It was a period Shenandoah. piece. It was Civil War. Well, you were dead very shortly into the thing, as I recall. Anyway, it failed. And you go through your entire career thinking, perhaps this will be the one. Right. You adapt to the role, right? Mm -hmm. And all your friends say, just wait, the day's gonna come, the role will meet you. And I always said, no, that's not true. Your friends say I that? have to meet the role. It actually happened with Janeway. I'm completely now lost. Now to know what Wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> my friends you, your friends say to you, you have to meet the role, and then you say to your friends, but if I met the role, the role has to meet me. And then your friends say, uh, you need new friends. You better go on a blind date. <laughs> Is what you need. That's right. Do you hang out in the public? Do you, or do you mix My with friends the are actors. I have oh, a lot yeah. of actors. Oh, friends, okay. Right? Well, that... So all you talk about is acting. All acting right. this, acting that. And will the role ever come? Will the day ever come? Will I drop dead? Will I walk? Will I talk? Will I crawl? Right? Finally, the day comes. You walk into an office. It's a great role. Right. She's the captain of the USS Voyager. That's a nice role. But I'm old enough, which isn't to imply that I'm old at all. I'm no. Sorry. I'm old enough to appreciate at this point in my life the magic, the alchemy, the importance of that marriage. So I'm, I'm in heaven. Absolute heaven. That's wonderful. I'm so she very said, pleased for you. <laughs> no, I'm very pleased for you. I think it's marvelous. Yeah, I must say, I feel ridiculous. As eloquent as that was set up, now I have to go, we've got a clip. <laughs> that was so brilliantly put that oh, I feel stupid going, clip. well, here's a little something with you and a crazy guy and pointy ears. All right, here we go. Dur -dur -dur -dur. Um, we do have a clip from the Voyager that Oh, we, you do from the pilot? We were going to show, yeah. Then, uh, I hope it's a good one. I'm sure it is. It's, I think this is you meeting the role. So uh, let's take a look at that. <laughs> How large is that crater? 200 meters in diameter. Captain, may I suggest you consider carefully what you're about to do? How do you know what I'm about to do? I could describe to you in detail the psychological observations I've made about you over the past four years, which lead me to conclude you are about to take this ship inside the asteroid. But suffice it to say, I know you quite well. One of these days I'm going to surprise you, Tuvok. But not today. I've already considered other options. If Nidus has any chance of surviving, we have to act fast. Red alert. 
That's the one they sent us. Wait, it's very you got odd a better clip. one with like Show dancing or something? It? What do you got? There's the dancing clip and the eating clip. Really? Yeah. We had one other where you were eating, but you were eating. You'll never see the meat. Really? On this ship. Absolutely. Why? You don't eat in space. It's all replicator stuff. Little nuts and bolts and you pop it in. You really? never eat. No, it's not good. Is the tang there or they get, they get away from the tang? No tang. No, no tang. But you're enjoying this, man. You seem yeah. like you're really having a good time. I really, really am. I think that's wonderful. A hundred percent. Are you enjoying what you're doing? Not at all. This is horrible. <laughs> You no, love it, don't this, you? Yeah, it's absolutely wonderful yeah. because I get to meet fine people. And he does it Such very as well, yourself. doesn't Kate he? Mulgrew, yeah. lovely to see Thank you. Star Trek Voyagers, Monday nights on UPN. And it's a hit show, by God. So, no, you're not going crazy. That is Kate Mulgrew being interviewed by Jon Stewart in 1995 on his MTV2 show called The Jon Stewart Show. Now... He wouldn't become the host of The Daily Show until four years later in 1999. So this was a little gem that I found on YouTube that I don't think a lot of people had seen before. So I hope you enjoyed that one. So, yeah, so that brings an end to our look at Voyager 25 so far. Next week, we'll be delving into the big news because... As you are aware, STLV is still happening this year, but it's just been moved to December, and we're now at a new location. We're no longer at the Rio. We're going to be at the Caesars Forum Convention Center, which is on the Strip. So we're going to be talking about that next week. If you'd like to contact the show, you have multiple ways to do that. We're on Facebook. Just type in Promenade Podcast. We're on Twitter, at Promenade Pod. If you'd like to email the show, it's promenadepodcast at gmail.com. So I will see you next week.